This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. I want to introduce you to a very small cat who goes by the name Stumpy Mustache. And we first met little Stumpy Mustache about a month ago or so. We were in our side garden and we heard a very small little cry, a hungry cry, a painful cry. And then we saw his little head. It was barely bigger than a kitten, a head with a little black marking over his lip that looked just like a little mustache. And he was famished and in pain, but was very hesitant to come toward us. And when we saw the rest of his body, we realized why. Because this little cat's tail was almost broken entirely off. It was sitting at a right angle, held on by the merest little strip of flesh. And it took a lot of patience for Michelle to draw the cat over and put him in a little crate and bring him to the vet. The tail, the rest of the tail couldn't be saved. It had to be amputated about halfway up and we took the little cat home unconscious. And I'd like to say the tiny beast was grateful for our attention, but hours later when it awoke from its stupor, it vomited all over our back room and then shot behind underneath our armoire where it hid for several days. But you know what? Despite this little cat's ingratitude, we felt this deep sense of the pleasure of God. Like some ancient memory in our hearts was stirring a deep calling we have from God to care for his creation. And I want to talk to you today about what it means to care for God's creation what it means to be stewards of God's environment. And I suspect this is a topic that you may perhaps have never heard preached about. I certainly have not. But yet, the scope of the love of God extends far beyond us as human beings. God's care takes in everything that he has made and his compassion is on all of his creation. And we celebrate the fact that this is our father's world. In the rustling grass, we hear him pass and he shines in all that's fair. And so when our heart begins to line up with the heart of God, we find it being enlarged from our selfish, narrow focus on our own souls, and it expands to take in everything that God has made. And we have a calling as human beings created in the image of God to share with him in his care of creation. Now this topic might seem very strange to hear from a Christian pulpit because we've all been taught that somehow 
Christians should not be involved in environmental stewardship, that in fact somehow it's a threat to the purity of the gospel to care about this wide world of God. And I think part of that reason is that we've all been shaped by political systems and discipled by political parties more than we have been renewed by the word of God. And Christians have made political alliances and have been pulled into um, kind of a package deal that teaches us that somehow caring for the environment is pagan and godless. Thankfully, this is not what the word of God teaches you know, in all the way back in Genesis, we learned that God created all things. And he said, this is good. God looks over the entire created order. Everything that fills and populates his universe and his heart is filled with delight at what he has made. Not just human beings, but creatures far beyond the reach of humanity bring joy to the heart of God. And then on the sixth day, God creates the first human being out of the dust. And he's called Adam from the Hebrew word Adama, which means the dirt, the ground. To remind us that we're not angels, we're not gods, we have the deepest possible kinship with the earth from which we've been created and into which one day we will descend. And to this first man and to his Eve, God gave a calling. He gave him authority and called Adam and Eve to rule over creation and to work and to guard the Garden of Eden. To work and to guard. To cultivate and develop and to protect and to conserve. And care for God's creation was not an optional extra for Adam and Eve or their descendants. It's at the very core of who God created them to be. Our prime responsibility as human beings is to care for God's garden. And that rule, in fact, is how we image God. We're his regents, his representatives, his stewards. And we've been given authority over creation, but authority in scripture is always for the benefit of those who are ruled. When the authority rules for himself, as a king, as a husband, as a father, for his own benefit, we call that abuse. And so when human beings are put in rulership over the earth, it's for the care, the cultivation, the protection, and the flourishing of all that God has made. And so Adam and Eve were called to build human civilization by wisely harnessing the resources of this earth, all ultimately for the glory of God.
God's marvelous creation was designed by him as a theater for the display of his glory. And our awesome calling as human beings is to be the choir director calling forth the song of the trees and the mountains of the birds and the fish to rise in joy-filled worship to the ears of God. And so from the very beginning, the fate of humanity and the fate of the earth were linked together in the closest possible relationship. For good or for evil, for blessing or for curse. And the tragic story of the early chapters of Genesis, of course, is that Adam and Eve were not willing to stay within their God-ordained limits. They did not want to fulfill God's purposes. They gave in to the temptation to become like God's themselves, who could stride the earth like titans and manage and control and dominate and destroy what God gave them. And so they were alienated from God and their relationship with their creator was broken and they were evicted from the garden. And when humanity fell, a shadow passed over the world. Because it was not just Adam and Eve who were cursed or their sons and daughters after them. The very ground is cursed because of our first parents. And in fact, even the animals will now experience the fear and dread of human beings. And they sense that when humans are close, there is danger. And so human beings find that we cannot contain the fallout. We can't limit the damage of our sin. It spreads over and pollutes and destroys and desecrates all of God's world. And this curse is not just because of the original sin, but every human sin afterwards increases the curse on God's world. And if you go through the prophets, you'll hear this again and again. Here is Hosea, for example. He says, there is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of all this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea are swept away. Human sin causes ecological disaster. Human sin causes ecological disaster. And God grieves over what our rebellion has brought into this world. And then as we read further on in the Old Testament, we find that God calls this little nation of Israel... They're in slavery in Egypt, toiling under the whip of a foreign oppressor. And God appears and he promises this enslaved people that he's going to rescue them from slavery and he's going to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. 
a land where every man will dwell in safety under his vine and his fig tree, where human beings will live in perfect harmony with the land should they choose to obey God. It's a chance to return to Eden. And in the book of Leviticus, to which we're going to turn in a second, the people of God spend this entire book, an entire year, living in the wilderness under the shadow of Mount Sinai. And from the mountain, Moses receives from God a detailed instruction for what society is to look like. And in this section of Leviticus, to which we're going to turn, we're going to turn to the concluding chapter of what's called the Holiness Code. What does it look like for people to live separated to the purposes of God? As a contrast society, not like the pagan nations around them, a scale model designed to show to the world the blessings of living in harmony with God. And if you read Leviticus, you'll discover that this holiness code covers every aspect of life. What you could eat, what you could wear, how to handle genital discharges, even how to farm your land. And so let's turn to Leviticus chapter 25, and we're just going to read the first seven verses here. Listen to the word of God. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. Okay, this is the word of the Lord, a word from a faraway, long-ago culture, which actually, when we dig into it, has amazing relevance for how we comport ourselves uh, caring for God's world today. And I want to pull out five virtues, five ecological virtues, five ways we can practice environmental righteousness from these verses in Leviticus chapter 25. The first striking principle I want to point out is this. The people of Israel were called to deliberately curb their consumption. They were to exercise exercise self-restraint, to stop the natural instincts we all have to maximize production and profits and revenue. They were explicitly forbidden from squeezing every last drop from the land. They were called to leave something on the table, as it were. Not to take it all, to leave some behind. And they were not allowed to use economic security or economic growth as an excuse to harvest everything possible from the land. 
When it came to their farming, to their agriculture, the Israelites were commanded to practice self-control. And you know, the church preaches often, as it should, about sexual self-control, how we control our bodies, but we're also called by God just as much to exercise economic self-control. That is a topic the church very rarely speaks about, but it is just as important to God because greed is idolatry. And so the first virtue Israel was called to practice and that God through this chapter calls disciples of Jesus to practice is to curb our consumption and not take everything available. Here's the second ecological principle from this chapter. That we're called to share with the community. The land was called to lie fallow once every seven years. One year out of every seven. And this practice meant that after the last harvest on the sixth year, you would plow your field under and you would let it lie there unseeded for an entire growing season. And it's almost certain that the Israelites also practiced a form of short-term fallowing where they would alternate their land every year, cultivating half of it and letting the other half rest in those years. And there is, in fact, a lot of wisdom in this practice. Because when you let the land lie fallow, first of all, you break the cycle of pests and diseases that occur when you have an unbroken monoculture where you're cultivating the same crop in the same piece of land year after year. When the land rests, the crop residue decays and it provides essential nutrition to the soil. The fallow field was designed to become pasture for the livestock and the cows and goats and sheep They would aerate the soil with their hooves. They would deposit rich manure that would replenish the soil with nitrogen and phosphorus. And farmers who practiced God's design for fallowing their land would not just be fulfilling a religious duty. They would be tending to the health of their soil at the microbiological level. And if they failed to do this, disaster would inevitably follow. Now, it's hard to do this because you are self-limiting from achieving the maximum short-term yield. And these were subsistence farmers. All they had was their crops. They were never more than a season or so away from starvation. And it would have required incredible self-discipline year after year to just let your land sit there resting. But there is wisdom in this. And archaeologists know this from the kingdom of Babylon under Hammurabi, who ruled around 1800 BC, about 300 years before these words in Leviticus were written. And the Babylonians, too, like so many societies in the ancient Near East, had very similar laws to this. But King Hammurabi decided this was inefficient and he wanted to maximize production. And so he canceled the fallow laws and forced his subjects to harvest and reap year after year. 
And what happens in the end was civilizational collapse because the soil became exhausted and infertile, lost to the desert, in fact, and that whole civilization was unable to support itself. And for Israel, too, disaster followed from failing to follow these agricultural laws. And in Second Chronicles, when it describes the exile hundreds of years later, the length of the exile, it says, was calculated by God exactly to let the land lie fallow for all the years the Israelites refused to do it. The Israelites were sent into exile partly for abusing the earth, the piece of earth they were given from God. And so here in Leviticus 25, we find that one reason for following these laws was to provide food not just for yourself, but for the entire community. In that year, when your land was resting, you were forbidden from going and harvesting it and putting it into your storehouses and selling it on the market. It was food that anyone could go into that field and gather. Verse 6, this will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you. And in Exodus 23, when it describes this, it also mentions this is for the poor as well. In that seventh year, anyone who was hungry, anyone who felt need, was permitted by God, encouraged by God, to go into your field and help themselves from whatever happened to be growing there. There's more too in Leviticus, because even when you were in a year where you were permit, permitted to, to, to seed and to harvest your land, when the harvest time came, there were gleaning laws. You were not allowed to harvest all the way to the edge of your field. You had to leave grain or whatever it was um, standing. You were not allowed to go over your vineyard a second time and take every last grape off the vine or off the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, God says in Leviticus 19. Because I am the Lord your God. How did the Israelite demonstrate he truly believed that Yahweh was Lord? By restraining himself from harvesting everything he could. You know, people who exploit the land are people who exploit human beings, very closely connected. Because environmental degradation and ecological collapse affects the poor far more than it does the rest of us. It hurts developing countries far more than developed ones. And so conservation is actually an issue of social justice. It's not just about saving the polar bears. It's about loving our neighbor, even though they're far away. And so in the book of Ruth, we find this man, Boaz. And here's how Boaz demonstrates his righteousness. By welcoming the gleaners into his fields, even leaving them extra, and making sure this foreigner, Ruth, is able to participate safely. And I want to emphasize, these gleaning laws were not a matter of charity. 
You were not free as a farmer to decide whether or not you felt like being generous to the poor or not. It was not about charity. It was about justice. You were obligated under God to respect the rights of the poor. The rationale, I am the Lord, your God. And most of us are not small, small holding farmers, but I think there's some provoking application of this gleaning principle. To those of us in business, for example, we have to ask ourselves, is my goal, is my mission to extract every last tetri of profit from my business? Or does the love and justice of God call me to leave something on the table so that I can be a blessing to my employees, to my vendors, to my clients, to the community around me? The way the Israelites were called to treat their land was meant to reflect the abundant generosity of God. Here's another interesting passage in Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 20. God says, when you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. The promised land was abundant with fruit and nut trees. Fig, olive, date, sycamore, apricot, carob, almond, pistachio, and walnut trees. The thing about trees is that they are productive for generations, but they take a long time, up to 20 years, to become productive, to become mature. And Israel is forbidden from indulging in ecological terrorism, of showing up at an enemy city and destroying even their enemies' provision for following years. Ecological terrorism, something the Assyrians and Babylonians and other empires practiced, but Israel was forbidden by God from participating in. And that was not just a matter for the ancient world. You may have heard of Operation Ranch Hand which the U.S. military ran from 1962 to 1971. And the American Air Force dumped 20 million tons of Agent Agent Orange chemical herbicides and defoliants mixed with jet fuel over South Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And they destroyed 39,000 square miles of agricultural land. According to the Red Cross, 400,000 Vietnamese people subsequently died from complications relating to Agent Orange. One million suffer from birth defects, cancers, autoimmune diseases, neurological defects, and other health problems. Years later, ecological terrorism, an offense to God. Here's a third principle of ecological righteousness. 
the Israelites were commanded to care for the needs of their animals, both wild and domestic ones, you'll notice. And they were called to remember that they had once been slaves in the land of Egypt, forbidden from resting, forced to work as long as they possibly could, and then abandoned when they were no longer productive. And they were forbidden from treating their animals as slaves, as machines. Because the Sabbath rest was not only for people once every one day out of every week and one year out of every seven, it was also for their beasts. The animals also had rights. A right not to exist only for their labor, but also to rest. Proverbs 12.10, the righteous cares for the needs of their animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. Because the heart of God is not just for human beings, it takes in all that he has created, and we are called to care for those who are under our charge. Okay, here is ecological principle number four. Making sustainable choices. Here's the definition of sustainability. The ability to keep, to maintain a system theoretically forever. To run things in such a way that you'll never run out of resources and the whole thing will collapse. So fossil fuels, for example, are unsustainable because eventually they're going to run out. Not very far from now, whereas solar energy, by comparison, is sustainable because, well, the sun will die a long, long, long time from now. So here's another text from Deuteronomy. If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. Just a tiny little text about God's care for little mother birds. But in Israel, even a villager harvesting some wild eggs or little chicks, they were instructed to make sure that the species could replenish its population. You know, God created this world with massive biodiversity. Just an incredibly lush, abundant collection of species. But once every eight hours, one of these species goes extinct, never to appear on this earth again, caused almost entirely by human beings focused on short-term exploitation instead of long-term care. Let me give you an example from India, in fact. The Green Revolution. After World War II, industrialized agriculture was seen as the savior from famine. Modern humanity's faith in science and technology to fix what are essentially spiritual problems. And the Green Revolution involved a number of things. High-yield grains that required synthetic fertilizers and pesticides and increased irrigation along with modern farm management techniques. And this was put into practice um, 
in, in Punjab in India. And in the 1960s and 70s, they, they completely changed the agriculture in that part of India. And initially, it was massively successful. Hundreds of millions of people were saved from starvation. And Punjab became the breadbasket of India. The problem is that these, these new high-yield varieties require far more water than native species. So wells have to be dug deeper and deeper as the water table falls. And as the soil gets depleted from these new demands being made on it, the amount of chemical inputs, chemical fertilizer, has to be tripled because it's like an addict. The original fix no longer works, and more and more synthetic fertilizers have to be pumped into the soil. The insects have become resistant, so now the pesticides have to be increased despite a dramatic rise in, in human cancers. The land in Punjab is being squeezed dry, and it's on a path that cannot be sustained. And it's not how God designed human beings to take care of his world. We're called to guard the long-term fertility of the soil, the earth that supports all of our lives, allowing it to replenish itself for future harvests and future generations. And it really is a lack, uh, an act of love when we live in a sustainable way. It's not just about me and myself right here and right now. It's for this entire world, and it's also for generations who will follow. My children and grandchildren, who I want to leave an inheritance that actually has value. And that brings me to the fifth and final ecological principle from Leviticus chapter 25. And it's this. The Israelites were called to be grateful for God's land. God's land. Because the whole point of the Exodus story is that the promised land was a gift from God to landless slaves wandering around in the wilderness. They had nothing and God just brings them into this wonderful place. And imagine what it would have been like being an Israelite, having grown up, spent 40 years in the desert, seeing nothing more than rocks and little shrubs, your throat dry from the wind, crossing the Jordan and seeing this land lush with possibility. If you read further on in Leviticus chapter 25, you'll see that there was no absolute right of private ownership. The land ultimately belongs to God. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And that was especially true of the land of Canaan. And so you were a tenant and you as a family had an inalienable right to a piece of property. It could not be permanently given away. Every 50 years, it would be returned to you. And so every family, every clan had their own beloved little patch of land. And because it was your land and would forever be the land of your family, you had to realize you were living in interdependent community and this piece of land had to be cultivated and guarded carefully as a stewardship from God. The land is a gift but it's a gift with conditions. God owns the land. He's the supreme landlord. And we're the tenants 
who will have to give an account to God for how we've treated his earth. And when we look at the terrible ecological devastation across our world, deforestation, desertification, the depopulation of the seas, the poisoning of our rivers, we have to ask if we are ready to stand before God and say, this is how we took care of your world. The lesson of Leviticus 25 is that you cannot claim to be righteous if you abuse God's earth. You cannot pretend to be a righteous person if you abuse God's earth. And whatever the culture wars might say, discipleship must include environmental stewardship. I know there are a couple of us here who are involved in different farming projects in Georgia, and there's a lot for you to think about. But of course, for the rest of us, life is a lot more complex than it was in Bible times when 95% of people were small farmers. Society is complex, and we are quite distant from the world. And so I want to invite you to prayerfully consider how God might be calling you to express care for his creation with your limitations and your opportunities. One way, of course, is to attend to what we eat. Because when we eat, and I'm pretty sure all of us here eat, we're expressing our dependency on the earth and the fruits of the earth that God has given us. So here are some suggestions for you. Okay, This is not me coming down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Tablets of the Law, but I want to make this practical and give you some suggestions. One of those would be to limit your meat consumption. Because one of the most devastating things, one of the least responsible things, one of the most ecologically damaging things to the land is is the farming of animals and specifically cattle ranching. Red meat is a very wasteful use of the earth. And in Brazil, for example, there are slash and burn techniques where the rainforest is being destroyed, turned over to cattle farming, which gives very few calories for the amount of land that is being used. I'm not saying you have to become a vegetarian, but take a look at your diet and ask yourself, is this the most responsible way that I could be eating? Because because as the developing world now begins eating far more meat, there's just no way that we can continue with the kind of consumption we have now. Here's another eating practice that would be healthy. Eating locally. Georgia is a very bountiful little country. And there's a lot of good, healthy food that's grown right here in this country. And so as good guests in this country and as good users of God's resources, try as much as possible to be eating food that is grown around you, supporting local farmers, eating apples from Gori instead of bananas that are flown in from Guatemala or whatever. And of course, if you can, if you can afford it, and this is not available to everyone, trying to eat organic, organic produce when possible, where you know that people are treating the land in a respectful, sustainable way. Another principle, of course, is this, controlling our consumption. And modern society, especially Western society, is based on an insatiable consumption of goods. Capitalism would not survive 
if we were all following Jesus' command to be content with what God has given us. Our whole economic system is based on rapacious growth and consumption. And if we're really happy in God, we should question our desire to always have more and bigger and better, to be content with what God has given us and be careful, self-restrained users of God's creation. And of course, I can also invite you, should also be inviting you to watch all the waste that you're producing. You know, we regularly walk across the street with our bag of garbage and we hang it on a little nail right by the garage across the street. And then magically, the next day, it vanishes. It's just taken, whisked away somewhere. But it goes somewhere, doesn't it? And if we were to actually collect all the waste instead of just getting rid of it, each household who would be producing a small mountain of garbage that just gets thrown away and poisons the earth. One thing that would be very healthy for all of us would be to spend time outside the city, in the country, being more connected with God's earth. When you're in the city surrounded by technology, it's easy to forget that you're you're a human being who has a connection and a kinship with the world around you. Go into the villages, go into the country, go into the farms, and be connected with God's world in thankfulness and in worship. Okay, I want to connect you with a few resources that might be really helpful for you. One is a Netflix documentary called Kiss the Ground. It's not a Christian documentary, but it's very interesting how practices of sustainable farming mesh very closely with the wisdom of God being described here in Leviticus. Kiss the Ground, Netflix documentary. There's some great Christian resources as well, faithful brothers and sisters who have been studying these problems for a long time. There's a wonderful organization called Arasha, A space R-O-C-H-A, Arasha, uh, an organization that began in Portugal, I don't know, 30 years ago and are all over the world now, conducting conservation efforts for the glory of God. There's also a super helpful book by an Old Testament professor, Sandra Richter, at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, called Stewards of Eden. Stewards of Eden, Sandra Richter, I think it's on sale on Kindle right now for $5. There's a little tip for you. And basically, I plagiarized most of the sermon from her wisdom in that book. So, Stewards of Eden, check it out. You know, this is a profoundly Christian issue, and it's a profoundly gospel issue. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for our souls, it's also for our bodies, it's not just for us as individuals, but also a community, not just for human beings, there's hope for the entire world. All found in Christ Jesus, through whom and by whom all things were created, and to whom they exist. And Jesus came to make the blessing of God known as far as the curse is found. The scope of redemption is as large as the scope of creation. And the sweep of God's mercy includes every effect from the fall, spiritual, physical, social, and ecological. And Jesus came as the second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. And Jesus, the second Adam, came 
to lead us back to our original calling as God's image bearers, to show us what it means to follow God's calling to care for God's world. So here we are, faithful disciples of Jesus, seeking to live out the values of God's kingdom, not just in a narrow spiritual little circle, but expressing the lordship of Jesus over all of our lives, our hearts stretching to love all that God loves. And we do this in hope, looking forward to the return of Jesus and the redemption of all creation, anticipating the fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah 52. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Creator God, we come and we bow before you. And we ask for your forgiveness in the ways that we have been complicit in sin and evil and selfishness and exploitation that damages other people and harms your world. Lord, we do want to be faithful bearers of your kingdom. We want to be faithful bearers of your image. We want to care for this world that you have entrusted to us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would expand our hearts and with an increased sense of responsibility, we ask for an increased filling of your Holy Spirit. Help your people, O oh Lord, be a true light in this world. Offering not an escape from its agonies, but redemption from them. O oh Lord, this whole creation is groaning in frustration longing for the redemption and the full liberty of the sons of God. And Lord, as we cry out for our own future, we also cry out to you for the future of this planet, this world, this earth that you created, that you love, and that you have wonderful plans for. Our hope, O oh Lord, is in Christ and Christ alone. And may he come quickly and return to this earth and direct its full, joyful, liberated worship back to you. In his name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.